This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. Last week, conservative talk radio personality Rush Limbaugh died at age 70. Limbaugh's nationally syndicated political show first hit the airwaves in the late 1980s. He was beloved by many who shared or later adopted his political views and his penchant for conspiracy theories, including the falsehood Barack Obama was not born in the United States. Many of his critics pointed out his cruel and crass remarks. During the AIDS crisis, for instance, Limbaugh's show included a segment called AIDS Updates, which made light of these deaths by playing the song, I'll Never Love This Way Again. Limbaugh's legacy was hardly limited to politics. In a tribute to him, one Christian leader wrote for USA Today that, quote, Christian talk programs in particular wouldn't even exist today were it not for Limbaugh's success. Christian radio would still be limited to sermons and songs. But instead, radio stations realized the benefit of capturing even a slice of Limbaugh's audience share and offered new hosts and new voices opportunities to join a new, more democratic discussion of the issues. We wanted to more fully dive into the world of Christian radio and understand Limbaugh's specific impact on this community. You're listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Global Media Manager at Christianity Today. And I'm Ted Olson. I'm Editorial Director at Christianity Today. All right, Ted, I would love to hear your gut reaction to, I think, not only Limbaugh's death, but also this claim that we heard um, about the impact that he left on Christian radio. Yeah, I grew up with Rush, I think it's fair to say. I was in high school, uh, working at uh, my high school radio station when Rush Limbaugh first kind of came into the uh, Seattle airwaves. And so it was kind of this very attention-getting thing. Uh, you know, David Dark had a commentary online that I thought was fairly fairly thoughtful. And he, you know, talked about the ways in which Rush Limbaugh helped young conservative Christians in the Gen X world like us feel smart and feel uh, kind of an in crowd. And David Dark said, when I was tired of feeling outsmarted, he helped me feel smart again, like an espresso shot of perceived righteousness. Like David Dark, I think that interest lasted only a, a couple years as Rush's popularity became really big and he got a TV show and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, my love affair with, with Rush Limbaugh kind of dropped off. It wasn't antagonistic, but it was ir- kind of irrelevant. Some of the claims about Rush Limbaugh, you know, I, I appreciate the comment. I do think he he had a huge effect on on Christian radio. In fact, you know, if you go into Christianity's archives, we ran a number of articles about how much Rush Limbaugh's popularity was reshaping Christian radio. But growing up, you know, I mentioned I, I got into Rush in late high school, like my junior and senior year. But before that, I mean, you know, my 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 mom had Christian rate talk radio on all the time, and there was there was plenty of conservative folks talking about politics, although they they kind of kept claiming that they weren't talking about politics. But you know, Jim Dobson would get on every once in a while and would say, you know, call your congressman and stop this bill, and he was able to, you know, kind of 
shut down the phone lines on occasion. So there was still politics before Rush. But Rush Limbaugh added a certain kind of jokiness and a showmanship to it, where most of the stuff that I was hearing on Christian radio was very buttoned up, you know, very much, you know, while not everyone on there was a preacher, you know, Jim Dobson was a, you know, psychologist and best-selling author, as the as the phrase often was. He he can't spoke like it. He can't spoke like a preacher. You know, he was he was very solemn. He was very Dobson did not make a lot of jokes on his on his show. But Limbaugh, especially in those early years, was all about the jokes. You mentioned some of the very darker jokes. You know, maybe I was blind to them back then. I feel like he got darker and more outrageous as things went on and as the you know Overton window of of what what you could say, you know, of what constituted outrageousness kept moving. You saw this also with Howard Stern at the same at the same time. You know, they, they start by being outrageous at one level, and then when people get tired of that level, they got to crank it up to the next <laughs> level. So, so that, I think that's what happened with with Rush. But yeah, I, it was you know, it was. How about you, Morgan? This, Rush was kind of be, before your day in a lot of ways. I guess yeah, it depends how you define day. Uh, I tweeted a little bit about this last week, but. Rush Limbaugh was heard a lot in my house growing up. I distinctly remember hearing his voice on the car radio and also on the radio in the kitchen. And my mom would often tape his show. I still always, always very impressed that you could tape something from the radio using a cassette tape. And then she would listen to it later in the day. I I remember doing that too. Yep. He would come on at least where we were based in Pacific time. So from nine to noon. And I just remember her like running over to swap out the tapes or to turn them over if that went off. So that's one of my memories of him. I also remember him saying folks a lot. I can hear other kind of rush isms in my head, but I'm not really good at mimicking people. But he definitely had a very particular bombastic style. I think I first learned that Rush was controversial when I believe he had gotten hired for some sort of gig um, to cover the NFL. And he did not end up keeping that gig for very long. But I hadn't necessarily seen him as kind of a culture war figure in the sense of I thought him more as just kind of, you know, being a spokesperson for... Republicans informally on the radio and not necessarily someone who was perceived antagonistically. Once I kind of got into sports talk radio, which was what my equivalent was, if that was something that I listened to a lot when I was a teenager. I don't think I listened to that much political commentary at all, to be honest. That kind of took over. And maybe, I don't know, Rush gave me a very like high threshold for some of the egos and personalities that exist in the sports talk radio world. But yeah, I I do think find it interesting that even if some of the ways that he impacted Christian radio and that industry, so to speak, may be overblown or overstated, and we'll get into that today. What is interesting is that you and I, who are hosting this audio show, Ted, you know, we have these memories and these experiences of listening to him, even though our show is very dramatically different. Anyway, who is here to kind of contextualize Rush for us today? Our guest is Dr. Mark Ward Sr., he is Associate Professor of Communication at the University of Houston, Victoria in Victoria, Texas, PhD from Clemson. His books include The Electronic Church in the Digital Age, Heir of Salvation, The Story of Christian Broadcasting, and The Lord's Radio, Gospel Music Broadcasting and the Making of Evangelical Culture. You can go to Google Scholar and see all the, as I, as I did earlier this week, and a number of pieces he's published in academic journals on evangelical popular culture and media, including a very great chapter on Christian news broadcasting. 
Mark, thank you for coming on Quick to Listen. Yeah, been looking forward to our conversation. All right. So not everyone that is going to listen to this podcast has childhood memories of Rush Limbaugh. So what should people know about Rush Limbaugh? You know, whether it's those of us who did grow up, but maybe not may not be familiar with some of the other details of his life or people who are never into radio, period. Well, to give the background, Rush Limbaugh's show went on the air in 1988 into national syndication. And the reason that the year 1988 is so important is because it was right after a very important event in government regulation of the media. To give you the perspective, anyone can own the paper to uh, print, uh, say, a magazine like Christianity Today, but the airwaves are public property, like a street or a sidewalk. The airwaves are uh, regulated by the Federal Communications Commission, or the FCC. Beginning in the 1940s, the FCC had a regulation that was called the Fairness Doctrine. The Fairness Doctrine said that, all right, broadcasters, if you're going to use the uh, publicly owned airwaves, then it's okay for you to air editorials or opinion programs, but you have to give equal time at no charge to anyone who requests equal time for an opposing viewpoint. And in 1987, the FCC uh, repealed that fairness doctrine. Within a year, 1988, Rush Limbaugh was on the air with the Rush Limbaugh show, and radio stations could air his uh, talk without having to worry about uh, giving equal time to opposing viewpoints. For that reason, I think Rush Limbaugh became the most listened to program in radio. More than 15 million listeners heard on more than 600 stations. And uh, essentially, he became the father of what we call CTR or conservative talk radio, the father of what scholars now call the conservative media establishment, uh, you know, Fox News and all the rest, as well as what has been called the outrage industry. And we have to remember that when Rush came on the air in 1988, there were only uh, three major broadcast networks, and they allegedly reported the news with a supposed liberal bias. So Rush Limbaugh gave to conservatives what they saw as their own alternative media outlet. So you've mentioned his impact that he had on conservative talk radio and the conservative media industry. Let's talk about Christian radio, but in order to do that, let's kind of give us a sense of what this industry looked like before Rush. I mentioned the uh, repeal of the Fairness Doctrine. The Fairness Doctrine actually was upheld by the Supreme Court in 1969 in a famous landmark decision. But by then, the FCC was starting to slack off a bit on enforcing the Fairness Doctrine. So actually, there were some Christian conservative talk shows before Rush Limbaugh. Some of your older subscribers might remember Talk Back with Bob Larson and his uh, sensational interview. He went into syndication on more than 200 stations in 1982. Or Marlon Maddox uh, with Point of View, a conservative issue-oriented call-in program that also was syndicated on more than 200 stations and debuted in 1983. To me, the real turning point actually was passage of the Telecommunications Act of 1996. And this is important because as recently as the 1980s, no one broadcaster could own any more than 14 radio stations. Prior to the passage of the act, uh, the limit was only 40 radio stations. So with the passage of the Telecom Act in 1996, 
suddenly, uh, they eliminated any national cap on how many radio stations any one broadcaster could own. And almost overnight, the radio industry generally and Christian radio became what's called consolidated. Large uh, media conglomerates uh, just, you know, bought up uh, radio stations uh, left and right. So what, what, we, what Christian radio was before that era was essentially mostly locally owned mom and pop radio stations with weak signals. And essentially they operated on the basis of, of a dollar for a holler. Yeah, they would sell radio airtime to pretty much uh, anyone that was uh, willing to buy it, to any any preacher. With the consolidation of the radio industry, no longer these you know religious-sounding, old-timey radio programs just couldn't make it. I mean, if you didn't uh, have a big name as a preacher, if you didn't have the kind of money to pay the rates demanded by the networks, if you didn't have the kind of production values that uh, could draw an audience, then uh, you know you simply couldn't get on the air. I I am fascinated by some of the earlier history on this because you know when radio I guess started and and Christian broadcasters started getting involved. There were a number of you know well known preachers you know like Charles Fuller's old time show and and his was mostly I think very church service alike uh, with with a bit of. Uh, accommodation to electronic media. You had some other folks like Robert Schuller. He got in some trouble in those very, you know, kind of early, early years, uh, partly over his political preaching, if I remember correctly. That was Supreme Court case, was it? It was. Uh, that was a landmark in, uh, I guess, the uh, the regulation of radio. So yeah, in 1926, uh, Robert Schuller, pastor of Trinity Methodist Church, a Southern Methodist Church in Los Angeles, they got uh, a license to broadcast over the radio. Robert Schuler immediately had these electrifying sermons in which he would just go after, in vitriolic terms, corruption among city politicians. His uh, broadcast led to the sacking of the Los Angeles City Police Chief. He was sued for uh, libel by the mayor of Los Angeles. He also went after uh, Jews. Uh, he went after Catholic. He went after other evangelicals. And in 1931, the predecessor of the FCC, the Federal Radio Commission, revoked his license because they said that this kind of broadcasting did not, as it says in the statute, serve the public interest, convenience, and necessity. Robert Schuller actually got the ACLU to take his case all the way to the Supreme Court on free speech grounds. And the Supreme Court ruled in 1932 that a broadcaster does not have a right to a license and that interests of the public supersede those of the broadcaster and that uh, if radio became a uh, forum for uh, public controversy and vitriol and offending the uh, sensibilities of the public, then as the Supreme Court justices ruled, radio, rather than being a boon to the nation, would be a scourge. And it's very interesting to compare that uh, with today because the FCC, probably since about the 1970s, certainly with the Reagan era in the 1980s, has taken a different view, well, what's fair on the air. And uh, essentially, with the proliferation of different medias, we've got not just AM radio, which only had in the time of Schuler, we got FM radio, we've got satellite radio. We've got cable TV, we've got satellite TV. Now, of course, we have internet, we have social media. And the argument was made that, well, nobody can monopolize the airway. Why should we have these kinds of regulations with the FCC policing what's said over the air? 
So today we have Rush Limbaugh, we have the outrage industry, we have networks like uh, Salem Media Group or American Family Radio every day broadcasting very conservative political opinions with essentially unfettered access to the airwaves. But for time, it was actually almost impossible for conservative Christian radio to get on get on the airwaves, wasn't it? It was very difficult because the networks refused to sell time to more of the fundamentalist preachers, and they but they made a deal where they would kind of give away time to the more liberal liberal end of the preachers, the uh, Federal Council of Churches back then. Yeah, this is where we can bring in a nice metaphor, which is uh, often called the magic bullet theory of media or the hypodermic needle theory of media. Back in the day, think Benito Mussolini, think Adolf Hitler, or think Franklin Roosevelt or Winston Churchill. Uh, It was believed that all you had to do was broadcast a mass communication via radio to the masses, and that would, like a magic bullet, the masses would be swayed. And because there was so much trepidation that this power to use this magic bullet could be misused, fundraising over the air was very controversial in the 1920s and 30s as radio was getting off the ground. The major networks at the time, NBC and uh, CBS, which came on the air in about 1927, they adopted policies where they would not sell airtime for religious programs. Because if they did, then the preachers would have to raise money on the air to pay for airtime. And also the Scopes Monkey Trial of 1925 made fundamentalists rather unpopular and controversial. So instead, the networks, NBC and CBS, said, well, okay, rather than sell time, we're going to donate time for free as a public service to the representative bodies of the major faiths. That included the Federal Council of Churches, the forerunner of the National Council, But because evangelicals had no central body of their own and weren't members of the federal council, then they didn't get any airtime. Basically, were shut out until the upstart mutual broadcasting system came on the air in 1934. They sold time to preachers so that they could compete with the established networks. And that's when you got shows like Charles Fuller's Old Fashioned Revival Hour, heard over mutual on more than 400 stations and at its peak, claimed an audience of 20 million weekly listeners which is pretty astounding even by today. Let's fast forward to the 1950s and 60s. The uh, two leading Christian broadcasters, you know, Billy Graham had the hour of decision. That was on about 800 stations. Billy James Hargis had the Christian Crusade radio program on about 600 stations in the 1950s and 60s. And Carl McIntyre with the uh, 20th Century Reformation Hour on about 500 stations. But the difference between then and today is that Billy James Hargis or Carl McIntyre, when they went out on five, 600 stations, these were all mostly, you know, small mom and pop, locally owned radio stations in small markets, rural markets, AM stations with weak signals, uh, not allowed to broadcast after sunset. And when they had to purchase time, one local station at a time, Billy James Hargis, Carl McIntyre, didn't really have control over, okay, what time of day is my program going to be aired? What is my program going to be next to other programs? Whereas today, with the rise of Christian radio consolidation, where it's controlled by a few very large networks, then you're able to have the same talk program broadcast nationwide at the same time to the audience 
which in a way just magnifies the opportunities for the Christian right to be able to use Christian radio to be able to get its message out to the faithful. Yeah, this is an interesting discussion, Mark, because what I hear you saying is that we went from a period where there were personalities that were on essentially (laughs) different stations that weren't branded as Christian radio as such. And obviously that many of these stations didn't have some of the clout that the consolidation offered. I'd like to talk a little bit about Christian radio's influence. Obviously, one way that I've heard it kind of measured is people count out the number of stations that were available or that a show was broadcast on. But how has that been measured over the years? And is this something, would you say, that Christian radio has peaked in terms of its influence or that it's been something that's been more dynamic over time? That's not an entirely easy question to answer. Uh, Back in 2005, the Barna Group, which is a Christian polling firm, they conducted a survey and they found that more people consume electronic or print religious media in any given month than attend church. And in fact, one out of every five American adults consumes some form of religious media, print or electronic, on a daily basis. And Christian radio and Christian TV were the two leading responses. More recently, a study was done by an ethnographer in 2014 comparing U.S. evangelical churches and Canadian evangelical churches. What she found was that in Canadian evangelical churches, evangelical identity was not associated with a particular political partisan identity, whereas, of course, in the United States, evangelical identity is tied with conservative Republican partisan identity. She said that the reason was that, unlike in Canada, the Christian right in the United States has an electronic church, has the vehicles of mass communication to get its message out to the people in the pews. Now, by one measure, the top two radio formats by number of stations are news talk and country, and religious teaching talk is is the third largest by the number of stations, but religious teaching talk is way down the list when it comes to national audience share. If you take all of the religious radio formats, teaching talk plus religious music radio formats, then religion, generically is number one with number of stations and number one with national audience share. That's more than 3,000 full-power AM and FM radio stations, which is about, you know, one out of every five radio stations in the United States. So that's, that's a pretty considerable influence. When you talk about the business model for commercial Christian radio, it has never been about selling advertising. It's about selling program time to preachers and Christian talk programs. The reason for that is that Christian radio can't compete for ratings with secular radio. And so again, it's about selling airtime for programs. And what these stations are selling is not ratings, they are selling geographic coverage. And then after that, the radio preachers, the syndicated Christian radio teaching talk programs, you know, sit back and they judge the effectiveness of a station by, you know, listener response and listener donations. Another reason it's hard to put a number on the influence of Christian radio is a phenomenon of today's technology that we call convergence. And that is that now it's all digitized. 
And you can take that traditional Christian radio program and you can easily repackage it and repurpose it and you can stream it on demand to you know any kind of digital media platform that you can think of. What's called new media or digital media, I see it not as replacing Christian radio. I see it as augmenting the reach of Christian radio. When it comes to the genre that we call Christian radio and Christian TV, this is essentially a white evangelical genre. You see, white evangelicals, they got into station ownership while you could still afford to do so. But then after the Telecommunications Act of 1996, no national cap on how many stations you can own, the only ones that really were in a position to be one of those consolidators and build a big network were the the white radio and TV station owners that were already into the medium. Consolidation essentially has locked in white evangelical ownership of this genre we call Christian radio and Christian TV. Yeah, I am glad that you brought up the last point. You know, we had read from that USA Today editorial at the beginning of the op-ed. Essentially, I'll just read that last sentence again. Radio stations realized the benefit of capturing even a slice of Limbaugh's audience share and offered new hosts and new voices opportunities to join a new, more democratic discussion of the issues. What I hear you saying here is that that ended up being actually relatively narrow in terms of just how democratic it was and just how many new hosts and new voices were given those opportunities. In Christian radio, about the only nationally syndicated African-American preacher that I know is Tony Evans. When you look at, you know, getting locked in, I have colleagues that have studied Christian music radio, and they did focus groups of fans of contemporary Christian music and fans of gospel music from the African-American church tradition. And they found that uh, a real disconnect, that they did not know each other's artists, they did not listen to each other's music did not react positively to each other's music. And so you find in religious radio that there is one community, essentially a white community, that listens to contemporary Christian music, and there is an entirely different community and an entirely different culture that listens to gospel music from the African-American church tradition. So real disconnect there. I mentioned earlier that Rush had trouble shifting from radio to TV. You know, those mediums, while they're together in places like National Religious Broadcasters, it did seem to me that in, in at least to some degree that Christian radio people, Christian radio listeners especially, but also Christian radio hosts were a little different as I was growing up. I was growing up a little bit pre-deregulation in some of my CT history, just looking at Christian radio. It seemed like Christian radio folks were different than Christian TV people. Part of that, it seemed to me, was that TV seemed dominated to me by the charismatic movement, and radio was a little more dominated by, this is probably oversimplifying in the same way, it's oversimplifying on the TV side, but more dispensationalists. I think one of the giants of Christian radio as I was growing up was you know, Chuck Swindoll, who you know, very much you know, Dallas, Dallas Seminary guy. We just talked about ownership and also economics. Uh, how much of it is what the medium demands, you know, to you know, Marshall McLuhan-ish kind of idea there. And how much of it is that, how do the economics of Christian radio differ from the economics of Christian TV? Ted, yes, I've noticed the exact same thing. I have been following Christian radio and television for uh, 40 plus years. And one of the major changes that I have seen between then and now 
is that on the one hand, Christian radio is dominated by conservative evangelicals, and Christian television is dominated by Pentecostals and Charismatics. And from where I sit, I think that conservative evangelicals, people like you mentioned, Chuck Swindoll, Charles Stanley, John MacArthur, D. James Kennedy, they prefer the aural, A-U-R-A-L, qualities of radio as, as being more conducive to a more conversational or lecturing style of teaching and talk. Whereas on the other hand, Pentecostals and Charismatics dominate Christian television because they prefer the visual properties of television for a more performative, a more experiential style of preaching. And one other impact of the medium being the message that I think is important to point out Randall Stevens and uh, Carl Giberson made a telling point about this in their book, The Anointed. You know, the question is, why is it that evangelicals, uh, they will scoff at professionally credentialed experts and they'll take Ken Ham's word on evolution. They'll take David Barton's word on American history. They'll take James Dobson's word on child psychology. I mean, the fact that simply being on Christian radio or Christian TV gives the impression that you're important and, and you have something worth saying. And in our evangelical pardons, uh, parlance, what that means is that you are anointed by a special work of the Holy Spirit to speak for God. Wow, that's a really interesting point that you were making there. And I, it makes me just wonder, okay, so let me ask a couple follow-up questions to that. So you're thinking it's not only the medium, but also that they're under this like larger umbrella of like branded Christian radio, that they're on maybe a, Sa a Salem, for instance. They're using Salem in some ways to kind of legitimize these folks. In 2019, uh, I, I published a study in which I likened the Salem Media Group sort of as the archetype of the evangelical media conglomerate to essentially a digital age denomination because Salem does for evangelicals who are often independent virtually everything that a traditional denomination does. Salem is a single source for religious education and devotional materials, electronic and print. They're a single source for professional journals and teaching resources for pastors, youth leaders, worship leaders. I mean, they're even a source where you can buy church furniture, choir robes, and, and communion cups. They're a lot more than just the one dominant player in Christian radio. For example, their web network generates more than 100 million monthly app sessions. And the last time that I read their annual report, because they're a publicly traded company on the New York Stock Exchange, so they have to make their annual report available, they had annual revenues of more than a quarter of a billion dollars. So here's where we get to a really basic fact of media economics, and that is size matters. A network of size inherently has advantages of scale. And why is that? Because it costs a lot of money to produce or to acquire media programming. Okay, but once you've paid that high first cost, then it's a relatively low cost to expand distribution. So, for example, Christianity Today, you would probably have pretty much similar uh, printing costs whether you printed 500 copies or 5,000 or 50,000. And it's the same in radio and television. Once you pay that high first cost to produce or acquire the content, then uh, say a radio show, a talk show, your costs are about the same whether you put it out on five stations or 50 or 500, or you stream it on demand to millions more media consumers. What we need to know about Salem Media Group 
is, okay, it was founded by two men, Ed Ansinger and Stuart Epperson, who owned some Christian radio stations in California and North Carolina. And as the FCC started in the late 80s and the early 90s to gradually increase the number of stations that you could own, they got together. In 1999, they went public to raise capital to buy radio stations. And within a very short time, they became the nation's third largest, I'm not talking third largest religious, third largest of any broadcaster in the nation's top 25 largest media markets. And they're not buying just little AMs with weak signals in small markets. They are buying AM and FM stations with strong signals in the nation's major cities and media markets where where most people live. I think this is where maybe Rush Limbaugh may have some influence on Christian radio today, because in the 2000s, Salem started branching out from Christian radio into having stations formatted with conservative talk radio. They have a number of conservative talk programs. I think it's seven, eight, or nine. Two or three of those are rated by Talker Magazine, which is the the Bible of the industry, as being in the top 10 nationally among radio talk shows with millions of listeners. The last time that I looked, Salem conservative talk programs had more listeners than, say, Laura Ingram or Don Imus. They have taken that position as a media conglomerate. But on top of that, Salem has become a very important player in conservative politics. They bought townhall.com, which is the leading conservative web community. They bought two of the leading conservative blog, uh, I believe, Red State and Hot Air. They bought the leading conservative book publisher. They bought the leading conservative book club. They bought the leading conservative newspaper. You know, CNN reported a few years back that Salem was pressuring its talk show hosts to be pro-Trump And it purged the writers, the staff writers in their blogs, because they were going in more of a pro-Trump direction. I, I need to say, though, we've talked a lot about radio consolidation. There is an upside to it. The upside is that production values are higher and more people are listening. And those can be good things. But the flip side is, is that the diversity of religious radio voices And local religious voices are are crowded off the air. And essentially what you hear on Christian radio has been homogenized. You've got uh, basically the same big name preachers and talk shows that are heard Christian radio pretty much everywhere you go. You know, what we have to think about is that uh, essentially, particularly say when it comes to Salem, that the religious media voices that are heard every day by millions of religious Americans are ultimately determined by a corporation that is effectively controlled by only four people. This episode is brought to you in part by Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Over 13,000 people in the Seattle area are homeless. Kathy is one of many who found a new life through Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Growing up, my dad and I didn't get along. I kept running away from home until one time I was assaulted. After that, I carried a lot of pain inside of me and I was doing a lot of drugs. I became homeless. It's taken me almost 40 years to get the healing I needed. But all along, God was looking out for me. He led me to the mission, and the mission has helped me in all kinds of ways. I've learned how to set boundaries and say no. Now I'm looking forward to working for the mission. 
I want people to know there's hope out there. God can help you heal. And grace will me to hear more, volunteer, or donate, visit UGM.org. Life is unpredictable. I think all of us learn that. Sometimes we learn it in good ways. Sometimes we learn it in really hard ways. You're valuable to Christianity Today, and we want you to be prepared and protected. And one of the ways that that can happen is by having a will and getting a will together for your family and to care for your loved ones. If you've already set up your will and other important estate planning documents, that's great. But if you haven't, Christianity Today has partnered with Epic Will to easily and affordably walk you through the whole process of creating a legally binding and state-specific will in as little as 10 minutes. You owe it to yourself and your loved ones to take this vital step, and you can get started today by visiting morect.com slash will. That's more with just one O, ct.com slash will. And for a limited time, you can get 10% off. That's morect.com slash will. You know, we've talked a little bit about, you know, disruption that uh, legislation had. We talked a little bit about, you know, what streaming might pretend. But I am curious about podcasts, which some people see as, you know, disruptive and some people maybe less so. Thinking about this idea that, you know, Christian radio was dominated by the kind of sermons and songs, uh, especially, you know, uh, religious teaching, although there were exceptions. It seems very much to me like when I look at the religion lists, top religion podcasts lists on, on Apple iTunes or something like that, it's definitely overwhelmingly sermon focused. If you see podcasts either poised to change kind of the Christian audio space or if you see that it's already having an effect on the, on the Christian audio space. Well, let me, let me answer a question with a question, and that is, you know, who do you think is going to have more podcast subscribers? Is it going to be Christianity Today, or is it going to be Focus on the Family? You have to remember that these traditional broadcasters, which are now huge evangelical media conglomerates and massive big-name uh, syndicators, big-name preachers, uh, big-name uh, talk shows, they have seen the future, and they are into podcasting, and they are into uh, on-demand streaming. It's not just one-off podcasters. We have huge media corporations. We have you know huge media ministries that, number one, they have the experience in producing content fresh every day. So-called new media or digital media, I mean, there's no point to it unless you have content. Content is still king. Who has the experience in producing fresh, compelling content every day? It's your traditional Christian radio and television broadcasters. They not only have the experience, but they also have the deep pockets to be able to drive traffic to their podcasts, to their digital media platforms, to their streaming apps. And my point here is that American evangelicals have invested in a vast electronic church infrastructure. In radio alone, more than 3,000 full-power AM and FM stations. So it's, it's, it's not going to go away. They have every incentive to take that and to leverage it, leverage that investment, and to use the technology that we have 
not to replace the old infrastructure, but to augment it and use it as a platform and a foundation for increasing their reach. So again, you know, I've said size matters. Once you pay the high first cost of producing or acquiring media content, then it's a very low cost to then, all right, well, let's put it out, let's stream it, let's let's get millions of more listeners, let's do some other related content. For example, did a study a few years back, Focus on the Family. Focus on the Family is best known, of course, for its daily radio talk show, syndicated at last count, I think, on about 2,000 radio outlets. But they also have, believe it or not, about 50 different media properties, both podcasts of their scheduled program, original podcasts, being a traditional broadcaster, being a large media conglomerate, being a massive media ministry. You have this critical mass where you're able to leverage the new technology in the way that more you know, one-off podcasters really can't compete. I see the advent of podcasting. I see the advent of, of new media, digital media, not as replacing Christian radio, but actually as augmenting it. And indeed, the portability of podcasting, the portability of mobile apps actually plays to the strength of radio, which has always been its portability and its mobility. Wow. Well, you've given us a lot to think about, a lot to mull over. In 30 seconds, I would love to hear, what would you say is maybe like the biggest threat or competitor or challenge for Christian radio in the coming years? In my view, I, I think that the, the biggest threat, and it's not just for Christian radio, but I believe it's for white evangelicals generally, is that, as I've mentioned before, it is the fact that the Christian right has this electronic church, has this mass communication infrastructure to get its Christian right message out to the masses. And now I'm speaking for myself, but in my view, because evangelicals have essentially associated their brand, their message with the last four years of politics, essentially they have associated their brand with the name of Donald Trump. This is going to uh, tarnish that brand uh, really for years or even generations to come. There are millennials uh, who uh, won't listen to a gospel presentation because, well, you support a guy that is all about creating division and hatred. So why should I listen to you? And what I have seen over the last four or five years, particularly in uh, Christian radio news talk, is essentially this association of the brand, association of the message with this particular brand of politics, with this particular authoritarian leader. I think that that is a threat to the Christian message. That is a threat, really, to the gospel witness. Thank you so much for just answering all of our questions so thoroughly and for giving us a really comprehensive look at what Christian radio looks like here in 2021 and the years before that as well. For people who have feedback for us, we are at podcast at christianitytoday.com. Maybe you have particular stories or experiences with the medium that you would like to share. We would love to hear them. Again, send us an email. We are at podcast, that's with an S, at christianitytoday.com. You can also find us on Twitter at CT Podcasts. Now is our segment, Slow to Speak, where we hear from all of you, our listeners. Here's a letter that we got in response to the Robbie Zacharias episode that we did about sin last week. 
Hello, Morgan and Ted. I listened to your recent podcast episode about Robbie Zacharias as well as the previous episode that you guys did about him in 2020. Thank you for your thoughtful presentation of the situation and for focusing on supporting victims in your discussion. I wanted to respond to something your guest said. He suggested that Christians need to have friends of the opposite gender. For single people, this is a very reasonable suggestion. For married people, however, I have a word of caution. From personal experience, I can say that it is dangerous for a married person to have one-to-one relationships with members of the opposite gender. In my case, I didn't set out to do anything sinister. I thought I was just making a friend, but it's easy for things to head in a sinful direction. I'm fortunate to have had people in my life who stopped me before I did something I would have regretted. If we are to encourage married Christians to take up relationships with people of the opposite gender, we should state that all their interactions should be when other people are around, around the coffee pot at work, in the church lobby, or at a mixed gender Bible study. I do think it's valuable to understand the perspective of the opposite gender, but I think it's important to share with your listeners that married folks should use wisdom and care when pursuing such relationships. It is not advisable for a married person to have prolonged one-on-one relationship with a member of the opposite gender. That person's marriage is more important than any perspective that may be gained from someone who is not their spouse. This person has asked that their name be withheld. Believe it or not, this is a conversation topic that comes up a decent amount in past CT coverage and is something that we look at, as you can imagine, from this particular listener's experience. It is a very sensitive subject. As someone who is a single person, I could say it also feels like a very sensitive subject to read letters like this, especially thinking of my own friendships. I think maybe, Ted, we can put one or two of some of the more recent articles we've done on this subject in our show notes in case people are interested in seeking some of the wisdom and prudence of folks who have thought about this a lot. Did you want to add anything? No, I I mean, just to say that we looked at this from a few different perspectives, including, you know, what some of those rules have meant for exclusion of of women in ministries and and workplaces, how to live wisely. All right. So, Ted, I believe that I've heard you on this show calling for people to send in audio memos of their comments. Yeah, people get to hear us in their ears. I want to, you know, we can have listener-to-listener engagement as well. We want to hear what you sound like. So so I am grateful that some people lately have been able to send in some audio recordings of their letters. So feel free, you can do that, or you can send us a note, and then we can reach back to you and, and ask for a recording. So let's play our first letter. Yeah. Hi, this is Paul from Maryland. Thank you for bringing Professor Imes onto the show. I believe the example of Israel highlights the problem I have with the San Francisco School Board's cancellation of such people like Abraham Lincoln. Israel, or Jacob, was not a great guy. Not only was he a deceiver, but one could argue he was a wretched husband to his first wife. One could also argue that his preference of Joseph bred contempt and his other sons towards Joseph. If not for Joseph's monumental mercy towards his brothers, Jacob's family tree would have fallen just as it sprouted branches. Yet Jacob was the man God called Israel, and the nation sharing Jacob's name would be the conduit through which God brought salvation into the world. Abraham Lincoln was a flawed man too. However, his willingness to change his position and become a stronger and stronger supporter of slavery's abolition is an example of a humble leader willing to modify his beliefs for the good. This is what this debate is all about, in my opinion. Are we going to wipe our country's memory of the people that made it the great country it is today, 
or embrace the complexity of human nature and commend people for doing good, even if they weren't always good. Finally, it is only a matter of time before Martin Luther King Jr. is canceled. His comments about same-sex relations were clearly homophobic, and despite his great contributions to our country, we can't overlook such hatred. Please note my sarcasm in this last paragraph. Sincerely, Paul from Maryland. All right. Do you want to comment on this one, Ted? Not really, except to offer a brief update, which is that uh, San Francisco, uh, on that episode, uh, San Francisco School Board has put on pause their plans to rename all of their schools. So they want to you know, deal with pandemic issues first. So, you know, hey, uh, you know, Morgan, our, our, I'm sure it was our show that had, had an effect on them reconsidering all of these issues. <laughs> yes, out of all the media coverage, out of all the, the media, that, out of all the media coverage, oh, maybe we need to think more deeply about what names even mean. I think that that's probably their. <laughs> well, my hope is that people that do listen to the show, you know, who do find themselves on renaming committees because they can expect this to continue to happen, will be able to take some of the wisdom that our guest Carmen Joy I'm shared with all of us. All right, here's another letter. Hey, Morgan, Ted, this is Nick Hyde from San Diego, California. The closest you can get to Hawaii, Morgan, was actually not have, not having to go there. Um, here's my thoughts on uh, the episode. One of the things I most appreciate most about your podcast is the fearlessness you have in tackling thorny issues we face today. No matter how politically correct or incorrect the message may be, I admire the offering of the other voices that may get lost in the shuffle. Maybe not ones we always agree with, but ones that need to be heard all the more. Which is why I was a little disappointed in the latest conversation reflecting on how we should react to the debacle of Ravi Zacharias' fall from grace and the more general topic of how to treat sin, grace, and forgiveness as a Christian. It's not that anything said I haven't heard millions of times before in my entire Christian life, but I think that's the problem. I haven't heard anything new being taught in the last 40 plus years, and we seem no closer to arriving at a definitive answers than we were when I was in high school, which was a long time ago. Today, we seem just as confused as ever when dealing with our and others' sin and how to apply the concepts of grace forgiveness, and responsibility. I've always been dissatisfied with the definitions I've heard concerning the word sin. Every explanation I've heard still boils down to some standard of behaviors expected of anyone calling themselves a Christian. They still reflect a works-based transactional relationship with God. But any loving relationship is not transactional. We don't get from God because we're behaving properly. God has always promised thousands of times through his demonstrated, spoken, and written word that we have everything we need for everything he will ever ask us to do. He has also promised overwhelming promises of delightful provision to find godly joy and happiness. So what's the problem? We don't believe him. Whether we're deceived in thinking that he won't provide what we need, or we attempt to think, take things on, that he never had planned for us, we simply won't trust him to do what he's already demonstrated he will do for us. Which brings me to my favorite definition of sin that I've ever heard. Dr. Neil Anderson offers that sin is attempting to meet a legitimate need by illegitimate means. This is exactly what has led to the downfall of Ravi and countless other Christian leaders and laypeople. 
The problem isn't a messed up belief system of how we should treat each other. The problem begins and ends with who we think God is and whether we will ever trust him for what he says. In other words, until we fix the broken parts of the vertical in our lives, we'll continue to struggle and fail at the horizontal. Hey, Nick. Great to hear from you again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for listeners to the, our show will remember Nick uh, from our ongoing conversation about Halloween lights, but we appreciate this letter as well. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, that, that love of God is very simple, but of course, <laughs> that's why we have, that's why we have 66 books in our Bibles. The, the ways in which that all gets worked out, building trust in God requires a myriad of ways of understanding of understanding what that means and that relationships. It simple but not easy, I think, is is the is the phrasing there. All right, one more letter. Hi, this is Robin from Virginia. I just listened to and really appreciated uh, the podcast. How grief is our companion? I'd like to affirm uh, Tish Harrison Warren's thoughts concerning grief. I recently led a virtual class at my church dealing with mourning our pandemic losses and have had feedback to suggest it was very well received. The podcast discussion concerning general grief was spot on. The church definitely should be acknowledging the importance of affirming grief and supporting and companioning those in the midst of that experience. Isolation was identified as a big concern, and I agree. I would suggest the idea of converting grief to mourning as the two are not synonymous. Thanks for discussing this difficult subject. All right. Robin is referencing an episode that we actually did, I believe, in October of last year. And Robin, it is great to hear from someone who is listening to an older episode of our show and finding it extremely helpful I really appreciate you sharing how this podcast touched you and that you were willing to kind of share it with your class. You know, Ted and I, when we were talking about what we were going to talk about on the podcast this week, we're just acknowledging that we are about to cross this really terrible milestone of 500,000 American deaths, you know, at least to COVID-19. So if you are interested in this episode that was mentioned, it is episode 236, Confronting the Darkness in a Year Full of Death. All right. Thank you, everyone, who not only sent us in letters, but is also experimenting with us in this new format that we are using. And I invite all of you again, per what Ted was saying, to continue to give us feedback and to try it out by sharing your voice with the other listeners out there. We're at podcasts with an S at ChristianityToday.com and Twitter at CT Podcasts. Now is the time of the show we call Precious Moments, and it's where everyone can share something that has recently brought them joy. Ted, over to you. Well, Morgan, my precious moment is probably one I've mentioned before, but it is a, a board game. I've talked about board games for a while, but Wingspan. I, I got some wonderful expansions for Wingspan. One thing I got was uh, the Australia expansion, which or Oceania expansion, which gives you a lot of uh, new stuff to play within the game. But I also got a craft to store birds nests so we can put all of our uh, game pieces in this nest so when you go to pull eggs you know you're actually pulling them out of a nest these little touches in a game can actually make a game a lot more fun but a game where it's a very kind of almost mellow game where you have hundreds of these cards with birds on them and you're placing them into these habitats either forest habitat or a 
a grassland habitat or a, a water marshy uh, habitat, getting food and or you're, you know, laying eggs or you're drawing bird cards. And it's actually pretty competitive with the way that they've vibed the art and the theming. It just, it feels almost relaxing, even though it's, you know, it's a good competitive game. So we played that and I've got an app now where you can take any of the bird cards and hold them up your camera phone and it will play the bird sound it will play the bird call of of that bird so it it makes it there's a whole big birding experience i love it it's very fun wingspan i think they've just released it for the nintendo switch i haven't picked it up but i'm on social media at ted olson morgan what was your precious moment this week my precious moment starts with a painful moment also i think people who have listened to the show for a while have heard me say this before my bike got stolen last week, which is very sad. Yeah, it's horrible. I'm still upset about it. And at the same time, I'm not nearly as upset because I've just had some really great people who have looked after me during this time. So, for instance, these are people that I've all just met very recently. One person lent me their car, which we used to drive to Pearl Harbor, which is its own type of thing. I want to talk about some other time. Another friend came over the same day and brought his bike and I've been able to use his bike since then. And then I was talking to my neighbor about it and asking him if he had any leads since I don't necessarily trust police officers to do all the digging that you need to to find and track down people's bikes. He told me about this guy who sleeps near a nearby supermarket and that I should go talk to him. Anyway, his name is Don and I went over and chatted with him. I do not know if Don is going to find my bike. Don definitely is connected more to people who would know where my bike is, though Don does not participate in stealing people's bikes. But Don was such a wonderful person and he was great to talk to. I talked to him for like 20 minutes about my bike and texted him pictures of it so he knew what to look for. And then I went to go talk to him again the other night and he's just, yeah, a wonderful person. So easy to talk to. He was like thanking me for asking him to look for it, even though I guess it meant having some like kind of uncomfortable conversations with people. I don't know. It was very strange. All three of those people, my other friends are named Lisa and Francis, have made me feel very taken care of during a very frustrating period here. If I do find my bike, I'll obviously tell people here, but you can also find out about it on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. All right, Mark. At the top of uh, the podcast, you noted that I teach at the University of Houston, Victoria in Victoria, Texas, about 100 miles southwest of the Houston metro area. As you've been hearing, I'm sure, in the news all last week, we were hit with what we're calling the icepocalypse. Just, you know, record low temperatures, lost power, no water service, busted pipes, Mrs. Ward and myself personally, we're thankful that we were able to maintain power, though we did lose water for about a week. My courses, like those at many universities uh, due to the pandemic, are online. Many of my students are non-traditional age students, you know, who are coming back to finish their degrees and have families. I have just had dozens of contacts from my students, particularly in the Houston metro area, who... uh, were without power, without water, busted pipes, some basically lost everything. But it was a precious moment for me to see my students and just the the almost Herculean efforts they made to contact me, 
to let them know that they're continuing to work as best as they can on their assignments, that they want to keep up with their coursework. Just an inspiration to me. You know, I teach at a public university. In uh, my personal life, I identify as a person of faith. Should any one of my students, uh, perchance, uh, be listening, I want you to know that my thoughts and prayers are definitely with you for all that you've gone through and for how you have inspired me. Actually, I was also wondering, would you be willing to share maybe two or three ways that our listeners can pray for the region right now? My suggestion is go to social media. You'll be able to find ways that you can help. If you want to uh, perhaps uh, help uh, scholarships uh, for uh, students at my university, we're always raising money. Most of our students, we are a Hispanic serving institution. Most of our student population are first-generation college students, so maybe they don't have the same kind of support network that uh, students at our prestigious universities have. They need help. They need financial aid. And so you're certainly welcome to go to our website, which is www.uhv.edu, to give to the scholarship funds that we have there to help students. Some have lost everything, and yet they're still determined to better their lives. All right. And where can people find you outside of this podcast? I have a personal website. That website is markwardphd.com. So M-A-R-K-W-A-R-D.com. Wonderful. Thank you, Mark. All right. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself, Morgan Lee, along with Matt Linder. And the music is done by Sweeps. Our podcast transcript is made possible by Yvonne Sue and Bunmi Ashola. People who have questions, feedback, stories that they would like to share with all of us, send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. We're also on Twitter at CT Podcast. And again, head over to Apple Podcasts to give us a sense of what you think of the podcast overall. We will see you all next week. <laughs>